Father, we bless you. We make known to any and all that you are our God. You never fail us. You see us through. Thank you, Father, for victory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to continue with the series, Healing Belongs to Us, that we've been teaching for several weeks. And our two main text scriptures are Matthew chapter 8 and Isaiah chapter 53. Matthew 8, 16, when the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now in Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We've uh, pointed out before that this word translated griefs in Isaiah 53, 4, is the word that's translated sickness in almost every other place that's used in the Old Testament. There are 24 times where the, this word, the Hebrew word, uh, is, uh, is used. Two of the, uh, uh, 20 of the 24 are translated sickness. Four are translated grief. Now the two in Isaiah 53 in verse 4, and then I think it's used again in verse 10. And twice in Jeremiah, it's translated griefs rather than sickness. But every other place, or nearly every other place, is identified or talking about sickness and disease. Now, Matthew, inspired by the Holy Ghost, tells us, gives us a commentary and tells us what Isaiah 53, 4 is really talking about. He healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now let's take a minute here in Isaiah 53. Everybody acknowledges that it's the messianic chapter. It's the most concise prophecy, Old Testament prophecy that uh, identifies what our Savior, what our Redeemer will do for us. In verse 4 again, surely he has borne our griefs. The only time the word surely is used here in this messianic chapter is concerning healing for the physical body. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. These words born and carried are Levitical terms. It's talking about specifically how that our sins are carried away by Jesus, our substitute. And in the same manner that sins are carried away, sickness and disease is paid for and carried from us. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now, folks, who does our mean? The only way our can be used literally, legitimately, is if it means the person that's making the prophecy, which would be Isaiah, 
and those of us that believe in the prophecy for ourselves. Surely he has borne our griefs, not their griefs. See, some people will say that, Isaiah, that uh, Matthew 8, 16, and 17 identify what has already been paid for. And as a result, much of the church world, maybe most of the church world, believes that God can heal. Of course, he's all-powerful, so he can heal. But you never know whether or not he will. It has been used, this doctrine has been used consistently to rob people of the notion to rob them of the knowledge that healing belongs to us. Now, the reason for that is that faith begins where the will of God is known. If you don't know God's will concerning healing, there's no way you can reach out by faith and take hold of it. And so you can well understand that the devil has perfected his attack, his deception, that's robbed the people of God from physical uh, healing, healing for the physical body. Surely he has borne our griefs, our sickness, and our pains, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, who is our. It's us, the writer and the receiver. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, same thing, our sins, our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. If the devil can rob you of the knowledge or keep you in the dark about the will of God concerning sickness and disease, he can stop one of the major works that Jesus came to the earth to effect. The Bible says that Jesus was made um, he came in the flesh to destroy the works of the devils. He can't destroy those works of the devil unless you know what he came to do and know what the work of the devil is. Now we know in Jesus' ministry that he was hindered in certain places from doing what God sent him to the earth to do. And those times, those things that the Bible identifies for us is the unbelief of the people is what stopped the working of the power of God. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 4. And then we'll also look at Mark chapter 6. Verse 16, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And, all the, eyes, and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. In other words, he's saying without question, without any confusion, clearly so that they could understand, 
He's saying these scriptures are talking about me. Now the scriptures he refers to, everybody knows are scriptures, uh, messianic scriptures that identify the work of the Savior when he comes. And Jesus is now saying, I'm come. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not, is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, you will surely say unto me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also in thy country. So he's had healings and miracles in Capernaum that he knows they've heard of. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, that's Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when the great famine was throughout all the land. But none of them, unto none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And when they in the, all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him to the brow of the hill whereon the city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. Now let's look at Mark's account, Mark chapter 6. He gives us an account of this that takes place as well. Verse 2, when the Sabbath was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence has this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? They've heard about the things that happened in Capernaum too. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work. Notice the word is could, not would. And he could there do no mighty work. The word in, uh, implies that he tried to and failed. Now think about that for a minute. Here's the Son of God who has been anointed by the Holy Ghost. The Bible tells us he laid aside his heavenly power and glory to come to the earth. That's certainly borne out by the events that are tell, told us through the Gospels. Because if Jesus hadn't laid aside his heavenly power and glory, he would have no need to be anointed. And who can anoint God? Here's God anointing God. Specifically because Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory. And he operated on the earth as a man. Well, that man needed to be anointed by the Spirit of God if he's going to accomplish the work that he was sent to do here on the earth. So here they're expressing their unbelief. He could there, verse 5 again, and he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went round about the villages teaching. What were they in unbelief about? Well, in Luke 4, the part that he read from Isaiah's prophecy, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. They didn't believe he was anointed. 
they thought from what they believed they understood or thought they knew about about Joseph and Mary being Jesus' parents. Apparently the idea or the notion, the understanding of the Messiah being born of a virgin was well known. Because when they looked at his parents, they assumed that he was born into the world like everybody else was. And as a result, they let their lack of understanding hinder them from receiving what God had sent Jesus to the earth to do, to hinder him or prevent him from providing sickness and disease, sickness from uh, providing healing from sickness and disease. Even though he was anointed to do it, even though he came to Nazareth for the purpose, the express purpose of healing the sick, but their unbelief hindered him. Now, folks, if unbelief hindered Jesus from doing the will of God on the earth, we need to recognize that unbelief is going to hinder us too. And because of the unbelief in much of the modern-day church, doctrines have been developed and made up to explain away why we don't see some of the same results as Jesus got when he was here on the earth. Jesus said in John chapter 14, the works that I do shall you do also, and greater works than these shall you do because I go unto my Father. Well, Jesus said the church would do those works, but for the most part, the church is not doing those works. That leaves for the leaders of much of the modern-day church the responsibility to come up with an excuse or an explanation why not, rather than simply acting on the Word and doing what the Word says in faith. Now, one of the things that has raged for 2,000 years in the body of Christ, or close to it at least, is this doctrinal question is physical healing in the atonement. And as I said a few moments ago, this is a, uh, an area where the devil really works hard to keep people in the, in the dark. And here's the reason why. If Jesus paid the price for sin or for sickness for the physical body in the same way that he paid the price for sin, then healing would be a simple act of reaching out in faith and taking hold of what God has already provided for us through the work of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection. And I have this question concerning that subject, and that is simply this. If healing is not in the atonement, now let me explain a couple of things. The, the word atonement is an Old Testament word because it means covering. You remember on the Day of Atonement, the sins of Israel were covered over for a one-year period of time through the sacrificial lamb, through the work of the scapegoat and the work of the lamb that was, whose blood was shed for the children of Israel. The word atonement is used only one time in the, in the New Testament, and it's really not even the word atonement because the New Testament talks of redemption. Now, the difference between atonement and redemption is atonement is a covering. 
And according to the ritual sacrifice given by God to the children of Israel, that covering lasts for one year. But it has to be repeated each and every year. But redemption is the removal of sin, not the covering of it. It's the removal of sin. We have a redeemer, Jesus Christ the righteous, whose redeeming work once and for all did away with the sin problem for mankind. And we know because Jesus was our substitute and the price that he paid by shedding his own blood, we know that all we have to do is reach out in faith and take hold of that which Jesus has already accomplished. But if if physical healing for the body is not part of that atoning or redemptive work, then we're left at the mercy of the devil who has no mercy and left with only a move of the Holy Ghost independent of mankind to bring about what God's will has already been established to be concerning physical sickness or sickness for the physical body. So here's my question. If healing is not in the atonement, then why are so many examples of the atonement used in the Old Testament to bring healing to the children of Israel? For example, we know in Exodus chapter 15, after God delivered the children of Israel, it tells us about the Passover ritual that was established. You remember the Passover was dealing with the, the firstborn, death of the firstborn child of every house. The Bible tells us that God's instruction regarding the Passover was to eat the, the lamb that was prepared, roasted and prepared in specific ways. And when they ate that, the lamb, it was for the purpose of strength for their journey is the phrase that the Bible uses. Psalm 105 tells us that he brought them forth with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble among them. In other words, out of this nation of two to seven million people that left Egypt, there was not one sick person among their ranks. Do you realize what a miracle that is? Exodus chapter 15, verse 23 tells us when they came to Marah, this is just a matter of three days after the children of Israel were delivered from bondage in Egypt by passing through the Red Sea on dry ground. When they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and he proved them 
This statute and ordinance is an eternal thing, an eternal commandment of God that was delivered to them. This is not just God saying, for this case or in this instant, instance, I'll provide pure water for you. He's identifying who he is to the people of Israel who really don't know him other than what they've seen in the ten plagues. So there he made them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them, and said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases upon thee which I have brought upon the Egyptian, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Here's the first time God identifies himself to the children of Israel. There are seven redemptive names that he gives, him, gives to himself and makes the children of Israel aware of. And the first one is, I am the Lord that healeth thee. I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now this word healeth is an interesting word because it's used in what we would call the present perfect tense. Which means, I am the Lord that brought you healing when I led you out of Israel. I am the Lord that will heal you today and forever. I am the healing God. Now, if we just had what we've talked about so far as evidence of healing through the Passover then we might really not have enough to do anything more than just speculate. But the Bible tells us that 765 years later, when Hezekiah becomes king of Israel, he reinstitutes the Passover. And the Bible tells us that even though they didn't follow the ritual to the letter as God commanded them, God accepted their Passover sacrifice and healed the people, the scripture says. He healed the people. Folks, God heals nations. There are several times in the children of Israel's history that God has healed the entire nation. Now remember where we started in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Here's where the commentary becomes more important. The commentary is that healing it belongs to all. Now we've got other times and other examples where an atonement was necessary to bring about healing for the children of Israel's physical body. Let's look at Numbers chapter 16. The story here in Numbers chapter 16 is when the sons of Korah rose up and stood against Moses. And there was a great miracle that took place. The ground opened up and swallowed the, the tribe and those that stood in opposition to Moses. And then closed up again after they, so that they have, uh, have, uh, might as well have just disappeared. 
Here's a great miracle that took place. But the next day, the children of Israel are murmuring again against Moses and Aaron. Verse 16, chapter 16 of Numbers, verse 41. But on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. And it came to pass when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron that they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation and behold the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation and the Lord spake unto Moses saying, Get you up from among this congregation that I may consume them as in a moment. And they fell upon their faces. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer. And put fire thereon, therein from off of the altar, and put on incense, and go quickly into the congregation, and make an atonement for them. Make an atonement for them, a covering of their sin. For there is, for there is wrath gone out from the Lord, and the plague is begun. And the Lord, then Aaron took Moses, Aaron took as Moses commanded, and ran into the midst of the congregation. And behold, the plague had begun among the people, and he put on incense and made an atonement for the people. Here it says it again, a covering for their sin. And he stood in the plain, he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. Now they that died in the plague were 14,700, besides them that died about the matter of Korah. So, folks, if healing is not in the physical healing for the body, is not in the atonement then why is the atonement used time and time again as, an, as a, a, a cure or a remedy for the situation that they're in? Now, there's something else I need to point out to you, and there is where this word plague is used in Numbers chapter 16. This is not sickness or disease. God didn't send sickness or disease in the camp. Do you know why? Because God doesn't own sickness and disease. Sickness and disease, according to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, came as a result of sin entering into the world. For by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and death is passed upon all men, for all have sinned. In the same way that the Passover brought death to the firstborn of the households that were not covered in the blood according to the ritual sacrifice and the instructions God gave. That was not sickness and disease that took anybody's life or killed anybody. God's not the author of sickness and disease. He's not the possessor of sickness and disease. Well, what was it that killed the people, the firstborn of every house? The angel of death. Now, God is not unjust in any way whatsoever to execute judgment to the unrighteous. And so where it talks about in uh, concerning the Passover and then here again in Numbers chapter 16, this is God executing judgment on those that have rebelled against him. It's not sickness. It's not disease. Let me show you another example in Numbers chapter 21. Verse 5, And the people spake against God and against Moses. 
Wherefore have you brought us up in, uh, out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. They're complaining about being tired of and fed up with the manna that God provides for them. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of the people of Israel died. Here again, we have to understand that the translators are translating this according to their understanding, not only of the language, the Hebrew language, but also their understanding about the character and the nature of God. See, there are other scriptures in the Old Testament that tell us that the wilderness that Israel sojourned in for 40 years was a land that was filled with fiery serpents. But the only time they become a problem is when they murmur against God and disobey him. So their disobedience, their murmuring against God and against Moses and Aaron is simply a removal, the act that causes a removal of God's hand upon them that preserved them in the land where these fiery serpents were. So where it says God sent the serpents, he simply lifted his hand of protection from them because they did not keep his statutes and his ordinances. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. See, they know what, how this stuff works too. They could have recognized that speaking against Moses and Aaron would have been disobedience on their part, and they could have stopped themselves. But like so many others, they didn't think about the consequences till it was too late. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if the serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now, what's the significance of looking on the serpent of brass? Well, the reason that it tells, tells us that the importance and the way to, to receive healing in this case is because the fiery serpents are still at their feet. The fiery serpents are still in the camp. And so the instruction that Jesus fulfills the example of the atonement that Jesus fulfills and the way we know he fulfills this is in John chapter 3 and verse 14. It says, Just as Moses lifted the serpent of brass in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It's talking, clearly talking about the crucifixion and the death that he will die. So Jesus identifies personally that this serpent of brass on the pole is a type of the atonement that he fulfills. So the question is, once again, if healing for the physical body is not part of the redemptive work of Jesus, then why does Jesus identify with it and the children of Israel have an experience where they are delivered from the evil that they brought upon themselves through their own disobedience.
We could go back to Leviticus chapter 13, 14, and 15. And it mentions there several times that the healing of the leper comes through the atoning work of God. It talks about if a leper is cleansed to make an atonement. So time after time after time, an illustration of the atonement in some way or another is identified with deliverance and or healing for the physical body. If healing is not part of the atonement, then why is the atonement used time and time again to identify healing as God's will for his people? Now let's come to the New Testament and look at some things that Jesus experienced and told us about healing for the physical body when he was here on the earth. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 1, it says, When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said unto him, See thou, see thou tell no man, but go your way and show yourself unto the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. A couple of things that we need to see is Jesus is instructing this leper to offer the sacrifice as described in Leviticus 13, 14, and 15. He doesn't instruct him to, uh, not to keep the law of Moses in any way whatsoever. But even Jesus, who healed the leper, is identifying with that atoning work that he will fulfill when he goes to the cross. Now here's another thing we need to consider. When this leper comes to Jesus, and he comes in much the same way that the modern day church would come as well, he simply asks, or states his belief, I believe you can heal me, I just don't know if you will. That's where a lot of the modern day church is today, isn't it? We believe God can because God can do anything. So he can heal, but will he heal? Why doesn't Jesus stop to pray? Why doesn't Jesus stop and tell the leper, this is a matter I'm going to have to take to the Father in prayer to find out if it's his will to heal you. In fact, the Bible says Jesus moved immediately to reach forth his hand and touch the guy and say, I will. How come? Because it's God's will for everybody to be healed. That's the only reason that we could give, the only legitimate reason that we could give under any circumstance for why Jesus would not pray specifically to find out about God's will for this man's healing. If God had wanted anybody to be sick, then he would have created sickness in the first six days of creation. But remember, after the six days, he looked and saw that everything was very good. And there was nothing that could hurt or harm mankind. 
in any way whatsoever. Well, then we would have to conclude that that's God's will for how man should live. We, should, we will have to conclude that no matter who has died from sickness, no matter how many loved ones we may have lost, no, no matter how many good people have failed to live their life out here on the earth, God expects and desires for every person to be healed and to walk in divine health. Now I want you to look at another one with me. In Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 27, And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said unto them, Believe you that I am able to do this? And they said, Yes, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith be it unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. But they, when they had departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. Now, why would God ask them if, he, if they believed he could? Why would God expect them to respond in a negative way when they're already crying out for their healing mercy, the healing mercy of God to flow from Jesus or through him to them to heal their eyes? One of the things that I think we miss oftentimes is the importance of our acknowledging God's power. You may remember in Romans chapter 4 where it talks about Abraham's faith. It says there were two characteristics of Abraham's faith. Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God. There's the first one. Strong faith gives glory to God for the answer that it cannot yet see. It praises God for the answer when it looks like the answer hasn't come. In other words, it operates according to the unseen truth of God's word rather than the circumstances that surround us. So the first characteristic of Abraham's strong faith was that he gave glory to God. But the second characteristic of his faith, his great faith, was simply that he was fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform. Folks, remember in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 13, the children of Israel come to the promised land. Moses sends the 12 spies into the promised land. They come back and 10 of them have an evil report. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, have a good report. They simply remind the people of Israel what God had said about bringing them into the promised land. That was their good report. They just agreed with God all the way through. But the ten spies brought back an evil report saying the land which we went to search is a land of milk and honey, just like God said. But we can't take the land because the people are too strong that live there. One of the things 
one of the great areas of unbelief that God hates is when people say that he's not big enough to do something. Those ten spies that witnessed and spied out the land, they came back, and from the things that they saw, the walls around the city, the military strength and might of the people that lived in those lands, they let that dictate to them that God was not up to the task. Now remember, it hadn't been too long ago, probably a couple of years prior at this point in time, that they saw God destroy the Egyptian army and they never even had to throw a rock, much less go to war. Caleb and Joshua remember that. And so for them, it's a simple, simple scenario. They simply proclaim their belief that since God was with them, God had led them to this promised land, that he was well able to bring it into their possession. Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, about the importance of not following the example of the ten spies who failed to take possession of God's promised land they detoured the plan of God, the will of God, for 40 years because of their, ref their refusal to believe that God is big enough to keep his word. We need to be constantly saying that all things are possible with God. We need to be reminding ourselves consistently that there's nothing that's too big for God. You may remember that was one of the things that God questioned Abraham about. When Abraham was 99 years old and Sarah was about 90, God came down and reminded Abraham of the promise that he'd made to him 24 years earlier about having a child, he and Sarah having a child. Abraham seems to have left go of that promise because he talks about the child that he already has through Sarah's handmaid, Hagar. He just asked for him to be blessed. But the Lord then turns it around and says that he will be blessed because he's your son. But then he asked Abraham a question. And the question is, is anything too hard for the Lord? That's a question we need to keep on the front of our thinking. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, we know from the things that the Bible tells us that, the, that there is nothing that's too hard for God. But there's a real difference between saying or parroting the phrase, there's nothing too hard for the Lord, and truly thinking it through and making that a part of your makeup, making that a part of the spiritual being 
that God has caused you to be through the new birth? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now the Bible tells us, and we found this out from experience, that that's one of the areas of attack that the devil works overtime on trying to bring us into deception. He uses delays. He uses extended periods of time to tell you that God's not working for you. He's not on your side. The word's not working in your life or your body, whichever that may be. He wants to keep you in the dark about God's will. He wants you to feel sorry for yourself because things haven't worked out the way that we thought they would or at least they haven't worked out as fast as we thought they would. And one of the things that he'll tell you, speak to your ears, is that because it hasn't happened yet, that it's not going to happen. Folks, there is absolutely no connection with the things that have not taken place as being proof that they cannot take place. And that's why it's so important in the fight of faith, the good fight of faith, to hold fast to the truth that nothing is too hard for God and the secondary truth that nothing is too hard for those that believe. So again, we have the people in Nazareth, Jesus' own hometown, refusing to believe that he was anointed to heal the sick. Faith begins where the will of God is known. If the word is given to us for any reason, it's certainly given to us for the one reason of identifying God in his character and his nature and identifying his will for mankind. So I come back to my original question. If healing for the physical body is not a part of the atoning work of Jesus, literally the redeeming work of Jesus, then why were so many examples of the Old Testament atonement used in connection with people receiving their healing and health? What other reason would there be for the examples in Israel's history to be fulfilled by Jesus on the cross if the cross of Jesus does not contain healing for the physical body. Let me read again on Isaiah chapter 53. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, 
and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Here's a reference to the scapegoat that carried away the sins of Israel in the Old Testament. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. This word death is in the plural. Jesus died not just physically, but spiritually. He was separated from God. Where the punishment for all of mankind's sins fell upon him in the lower part of hell. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now look at verse 10 again. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Here's this word grief that's translated sickness 20 out of 24 times in the Old Testament. It literally says he has made him sick. Now that doesn't mean Jesus had cancer on the cross or that he became a leper while he was hanging on the cross. It simply means that just in the same way that the Bible tells us Jesus was made sin for us, he was also made sickness. He was the substitute. As our substitute, he has paid the price for sin and sickness. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him he has made him sick. When thou, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. As much as his soul was made an offering for sin, his body was offered to, uh, uh, was made sick or sickness. You can't separate these things, folks. Verse 5, maybe the most well-known scripture concerning the redemptive work of Jesus. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The difference between the transgressions and the iniquities is original sin versus personal sin. Jesus paid the price for Adam's original sin in the Garden of Eden. And in the same way, he paid the price for our individual sins. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we were healed. With his stripes we are healed. Isaiah says we are because he's looking forward into the future work of Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, Peter is looking backwards, and with his stripes we were healed. So the only difference is from what vantage point you're looking from. Isaiah looks forward and says, and with his stripes, we are healed. Now, what are the stripes referenced to? Well, when Jesus was beaten in Pilate's court, blood was shed. And the blood that was shed from the 
beating the bruising of Jesus. And this bruise, this word bruise seems to be too mild because it's a specific term. If there was as much as one thirty-second of an inch, then you couldn't use the word that was used. This literally means all the flesh was ripped off of his back so that it looked like one continuous mark. We've seen in some Western shows where somebody would get bull whipped or something like that, and it always ends with the, the red stripes on their back. But that's not the way Jesus was beaten. Jesus was beaten in such a manner that you could not distinguish one mark from another. His whole back was nearly torn off in this beating that he took in Pilate's court. I have to be careful when I approach this because when I think about what Jesus paid, when I consider the reality of the beating that Jesus paid, who would dare say that healing doesn't belong to us? When the Bible says that, that the purpose for the beating that he took, the severity that he took, and it was not uncommon when the Romans would beat somebody like that, that the people would die. But the price that Jesus paid was so severe that how dare anybody, I don't care what they're called, what ministry position they're called to, or how big a church they've got, or how big a ministry they've got, how dare would somebody say that that doesn't count for what it was intended to do? Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pains. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. That means he shed blood for the original sin of Adam. He was bruised for our iniquities. He shed blood for our personal sins. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. He paid the price for poverty and lack. And with his stripes, we are healed. Folks, healing belongs to everybody. And it's easily accessed. The devil wants you to think that it's a hard thing to get healed. It's not. It's easily accessed because Jesus has paid the price. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes and lift one hand toward heaven and say this after me. Christ has redeemed us from sickness. By the declaration of our mouth, he took our infirmities and bare our disease. And so we therefore speak in faith and declare that we are healed 
from the top of our head to the soles of our feet. And according to the word, this prayer, this declaration of faith heals my body. And the Lord raises me up. Now lift your other hand and thank you because that's true. Thank you, Father. We place a demand on the healing power of God because of the price that Jesus paid. And we thank you, Lord, for your steadfastness and your faithfulness. And we thank you for working in a miraculous way to raise us up and to remove sickness and disease from our flesh. We love you, Father. We thank you so much for the work of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, say it with me. The Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. Folks, have a great day. We love you.